0: If you have your Bibles, I'd love for you to join me in Matthew chapter 21. I want to take just a second to set the context of the verses that I'm going to read. Jesus, John's Gospel tells us, has arrived in the city of Jerusalem prior to the Passover. And in order for us to comprehend all that is happening in the life of Christ and to really magnify the verses that we're going to read, understand this, that as Jesus has now approached Jerusalem, he has come to the town of Bethany, which is about two miles to the east of Jerusalem, and he is staying in the home of three very dear friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And at this point in time, he has already raised Lazarus from the dead. He has most recently left the city of Jericho and come up to Jerusalem, and when he was most recently in Jericho, he healed blind Bartimaeus, and he brought salvation to Zacchaeus, the tax collector that was there. Now it's Passover time in the city of Jerusalem. It is overflowing with multitudes, scores of people, and finding a place to stay is not easy. In fact, a great multitude from the city has worked their way out to Bethany because they have heard that Jesus Christ is there. Next in the sequence of events is something that you are familiar with it is the triumphal entry. Jesus comes into the city of Jerusalem through the eastern gate, he works his way down to the temple. And on that procession, people are shouting for him, and they are shouting, Hosanna, salvation. He is declaring that he is the Messiah. He is received as a king at the conclusion of that procession. He works his way back out to the village of Bethany. The next morning, he will come from Bethany, and he will go into Jerusalem, and he will cleanse the temple. He will turn over the money changers' tables, and he will tip over the seats of those that sell doves, and he will declare, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves. We know this story. All of these instances are very familiar, high points within Scripture. After cleansing the temple, Jesus will traverse the journey back out to the village of Bethany, And on the next day, he will work his way back into Bethany, and in fact, in verse 23 of Matthew 21, the chief priests, the scribes, the lawyers, the Sanhedrin, will find Jesus walking around in the temple, and they will ask him, by what authority do you do these things? This is a major week for Jesus. If we were to take a step back and look at Scripture for just a moment as a real estate market... This is the finest location within Scripture. This is the Passion Week. Sandwiched in between cleansing the temple, going back out to Bethany, coming back in and being addressed by the scribes and the chief priests, a little event occurs. It is a seemingly benign story. It doesn't seem like it would raise to the level of the location that it is given within Scripture but there's much in it. In fact, we'll pick up reading right now in Matthew chapter 21 and verse 18. In the midst of all of these high points in Scripture, here's what we read in verse 18. Now in the morning, as he returned into the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it, and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. And when the disciples saw it, they marveled, saying, How soon is the fig tree withered away? Jesus answered and said unto them, Verily I say unto you, If ye have faith and doubt not, ye shall not only do this which is done to the fig tree, But also if ye shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be thou cast into the sea, it shall be done. And all things whatsoever ye shall ask in prayer, believing ye shall receive. Now again, marrying ourselves to the context, when Jesus says, if you'll say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, it will happen. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives, and on a clear day you can see the Dead Sea, and He may have made the hand motions. You could say to this mountain, be cast into the sea, and it would happen. Now take a step back for just a moment, and let the Scripture wash over you. We know we're in the midst of the Passion Week. These are mountain peak moments within Scripture. And sandwiched in between all of these days, we have Jesus interacting with a fig tree. And very plainly, Matthew said, Jesus saw the fig tree and went up to the fig tree, assuming that he would find figs on it. That's not super deep. Mark, who has a parallel account to Matthew's, says this in Mark eleven thirteen. 13, and seeing a fig tree afar off, having leaves, he came. If haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves. For the time of figs was not yet. What is being taught here by Mark is it's late spring. Typically, figs were not on the tree at this point in the season. But this particular fig tree under the sovereign plan of God is an early bloomer. Leaves are on the tree. Any reader of this in this context would have understood if I see leaves on the fig tree... I can expect that there will be figs there. All of this is very practical. But what Jesus finds is all leaves, no fruit. All expectation, no satisfaction. There's a hundred ways to say this. All glitter, no gold. You ever heard this one? All sizzle, no steak. That was the one I really worked on. All leaves, no fruit. All expectation, no satisfaction. All glitter, no gold. All hope, no substance. All sizzle, no steak. I see a tree that has leaves on it. I expect I'll find fruit there. I find none. Now, because of the elevated location that this story has within Scripture, there is something very important going on here. We are being directed by the Holy Spirit To read this, Jesus curses a fig tree. Overwhelmingly, his miracles are miracles of mercy. It stands out that he has cursed this fig tree. What is Jesus teaching the disciples? And what does Jesus want us to know? I have found it interesting that many commentators addressed the attitude of Jesus in a negative fashion. Here's what we do know. Jesus was hungry. Matthew told us that. Mark backs it up. It's as simple as Jesus being hungry and wanting figs off of the tree. It was standard mode of operation, even once the disciples are walking through a cornfield and they're plucking ears of corn so that they might eat. This was normal for Jesus or other travelers along the road to avail themselves whatever fruit was there. Jesus was hungry, being declared in there as his humanity. In the week of his crucifixion, after his triumphal entry where he declares that he is the Messiah and he's received as a king, we also see his humanity shine through. He's hungry. He gets to the tree and there is no fruit there. And Jesus curses the fig tree. There's got to be a lot there. Now, if this had taken place at the normal time of figs, Jesus could just move on to another fig tree and find a fig. But this is an early bloomer. We're meant to see something here. I was stunned how many commentators viewed the attitude of Jesus in a negative light. You say, well, don't read those commentators. They're trusted commentators. I just happened to disagree with them. I actually felt good. I was kind of smug, like I'm smarter than you commentators. I disagree. You say, what do you disagree with? One wrote this. This is a tale of miraculous power Wasted in the service of ill temper. For the supernatural energy employed to blast the unfortunate tree might have been more usefully expended in forcing a crop of figs out of season. Jesus could have looked at the fig tree and said, Give me figs! And the fig tree would have produced figs as quickly, if not quicker, than the fig tree withered up and died. Another commentator said this, Jesus, venting his feelings and frustration and despair upon the fig tree. Another went so far as to say Jesus was guilty of petulance here. Which means childishly sulky or bad-tempered. That's a misuse of scripture. We're not seeing Jesus have a temper tantrum against the fig tree There is something of value here for us to learn. It's amazing to me that they would view Jesus in that way when we as students of the Bible know this is both a miracle and a parable. Jesus is teaching something to his disciples on the surface. There can be no doubt this is a parable about prayer. Secondarily, under the surface, Jesus has just cleansed the temple and he is communicating to his disciples about the empty religion's doom. He's talking about the capitulation of the temple and we have to take it in its context. What's the analogy? Well, from a distance, the fig tree had a promising appearance. I'm hungry and I want figs. That fig tree has leaves. It must have figs. Graphically illustrates what was going on in the temple. Now you say, Pastor, you're taking this too far. Using agricultural analogies comes natural to me. I was raised not anywhere near a farm. I cut grass. That's it. But I do know that within Scripture, agricultural analogies was the norm. In fact, it is impossible to avoid. As a student of the Scripture, you'll see that the nation of Israel is depicted as a fig tree. Now, there are pieces within Scripture. This is prime location stuff, Passion Week, but there is other Scripture that we call flyover Scripture. It's the Scripture you never read when you're on your own, like Isaiah 34, Jeremiah 29, Hosea 2, Hosea 9, Micah 7. Those are all real, actual Bible books where the nation of Israel is depicted in agricultural terms. Listen to Joel 1, 6 through 7. I know you think, I know a guy named Joel. This is a Bible book. Joel 1, 6 and 7. For a nation is come up upon my land, strong and without number, whose teeth are the teeth of a lion, and he hath the cheek teeth of a great lion. He hath laid my vine waste and barked my fig tree. He hath made it clean bare and cast it away. The branches thereof are made white. We don't have time to dig into the context, but the nation of Israel is the barked fig tree. Cursed is their sinful behavior. Isaiah, we read this from Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. Let me clarify for you. And the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. He looked for judgment, but behold oppression. For righteousness, but behold a cry. The fruitlessness of the nation of Israel. The barked fig tree is a sign of of the curse for their rebellion. Hosea 9.10, just so I can show off and read another minor prophet, says this, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe in the fig tree at her first time. But they went to Baal Peor and separated themselves unto that shame and their abominations were according as they loved. It is a sign of the curse upon Israel for their rebellion. Isaiah makes this painfully clear. In Isaiah chapter 5, we read this, God is now pronouncing judgment on Israel through the prophet Isaiah, and he says, now will I sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved touching his vineyard. My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill, and he fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, and planted it with the choicest vine, and built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a winepress therein. And he looked that it should bring forth grapes, and it brought forth wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, I pray you, betwixt me and my vineyard. What could have been done more to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Wherefore, when I looked that it should bring forth grapes, brought it forth wild grapes, and now go to, I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away the hedge thereof, and it shall be eaten up. And break down the wall thereof, and it shall be trodden down. And I will lay it waste. It shall not be pruned nor digged, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah's pleasant plant. And he looked for judgment, but behold, oppression for righteousness, but behold, a cry. We cannot mistake that Jesus is teaching the disciples something valuable about empty religion. He has just been received into the temple. He has just cleansed the temple, which is a debauched setting. And now he curses the fig tree, and the fig tree withers during the week that Jesus Christ will be crucified. It's stunning to consider. The fig tree, once again, has failed. There was a tumult of people. There was a whole lot of noise. There was an incredible procession where they shout, Hosanna! Go into the temple space and there's a lot of activity. There is songs that are being sung, but it's all a show. None of it is real. Jesus enters God's house, which should have been a house of prayer, and they have made it a den of thieves. A lot of action, a lot of bustle, but no righteousness. Leaves, no fruit. Sizzle, no steak. Mark's careful to tell us the disciples are honed in on what Jesus is saying. The disciples are listening in. I mean, clearly, it's stunning to me, and we'll get there in a moment. Peter actually references the cursed fig tree as they pass it on the next day. Jesus sees the fig tree, and he cursed it in verse 19. He spoke a curse over it. Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently, the fig tree withered away. Now, let me jump into Mark's gospel, which is a parallel account, and read something from verse 15. And they come to Jerusalem, and Jesus went into the temple, and began to cast out them that sold and bought in the temple, and overthrew the tables of the money changers, and the seats of them that sold doves, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. And he taught, saying unto them, Is it not written, My house shall be called of all nations the house of prayer, but ye have made it a den of thieves." Now don't let this just be lost in scriptural verbiage. Jesus has just caused a scene in the temple. This is not done in some back alley. This is not done on an off week in Jerusalem. This is Passover week. And Jesus Christ walks into the temple and He cleans house. The Jesus that we see, which is weak, is not the Jesus of Scripture. In fact, Mark tells us that the temple courtyard was being used as a shortcut for people to bring their merchandise or their wares to the market. And Jesus stood in the midst of the temple and he disallowed anybody to pass through and use it as a shortcut and nobody messed with him. In a way, the curtain is peeled back and his divinity is revealed because when Jesus went on his holy, righteous indignation, tirade through the temple, nobody stopped him. He was untouchable. They could have rushed him. They could have taken temple security. Nobody could stop Jesus in that moment. He disallows any passage through. And Jesus sees the revulsion of the temple. Can you imagine what the only begotten son of God is seeing as he steps into the temple, which was nicknamed at this point in time the Bazaar of Annas, who was the high priest. Annas, who is related to Caiaphas, who will, when Jesus is arrested, mock, beat, and send him over to Pilate, Annas. Annas was extorting poor pilgrims. A couple of weeks ago, we studied out the fish in the coins, the fish in the coin's mouth, that wouldn't happen. The coin in the fish's mouth did happen. In order that Peter and Jesus might pay the temple tax, you could not enter the temple during the week of Passover if you had not paid the temple tax. And in order for you to maintain tradition during the week of Passover, you had to enter the temple courtyard. So you had to pay the tax. Well, at this point in Palestine, there are Roman coins going around, Grecian coins, even coins from Sidon. And so when you got to the temple, you could not take those coins, you had to have temple currency. And so there were money changers seated out in front of the temple and you would take your currency to them and you would have to get That temple currency so that you could pay the temple tax to get into the temple. How many of you think it was set up so that the exchange rate was fair? Absolutely not. It was nothing but extortion. Now, Annas had also devised a system of inspecting your sacrificial animal by temple inspectors. The Old Testament law said, bring a lamb from your own flock, bring from your own home, bring it to, now it has to be without spot and it has to be without blemish and all you have to do when you bring your lamb is bring it here to the temple inspector who will tell you whether or not your lamb is actually without spot and without blemish and certainly that was a fair setup, found the blemish. Now I happen to believe they would take that lamb, put it right back in and sell it to somebody else. Now they had, out on the Judean hillside, right there around Jerusalem, they had flocks of sheep that were used for temple sacrifices, and if you were to find that your animal was not sufficient for sacrifice, they would sell you one, and again, you know that that was at an incredibly exorbitant rate. And by the way, you had to pay money just to have your animal inspected by the temple inspectors. Poor pilgrims being extorted by Annas and Caiaphas. And onto the scene comes the only begotten son of God who himself is the lamb for sacrifice. Without spot and without blemish whose Father God had devised this system to bring honor to Him and to declare the Messiah who would one day come as the final sacrifice. And Jesus, who was always sensitive to the poor pilgrim, comes into this place of debauchery and criminal activity and extortion and robbery, and he sees all of this going on the week that he will be crucified, and he turns the tables over, turns over the chairs of those that sell doves, and he says, you have made this house, which should be a place of prayer, a den of thieves. That takes guts. One of my favorite things about this entire story is the next day when any one of us who had just gone on that tirade in the temple would have stayed out of the temple area, Jesus walks right back in. And sheepishly, the chief priests say, sir, quick question, by what authority do you do these things? Now you can also begin to sense the emotion in this passion week. When Annas and Caiaphas finally get to send the Roman legion down into the garden of Gethsemane. Betrayed by Judas Iscariot to arrest Jesus. And Jesus will now walk into their presence. It's an illegal trial. It's a trial in the middle of the night. They've gathered together the Sanhedrin in the dark. And Annas and Caiaphas question Jesus and their hate comes pouring out of them because Jesus is affecting their bottom line and fueled by a satanic hatred, they will pour all of that vitriol out on a man who had never done anything to harm them. That's why the fig tree is cursed. That's the emptiness of this religion. That's what's going on. What would Jesus think of how we're doing it? Externalism still runs rampant. I happen to believe that in a room like this, I can't be afraid to say that there are certainly some fine looking fig trees. You can hear, if you listen closely, sizzle, which would promise a really great steak. There's a lot of glitter that you would assume is attached to some real gold. But I fear like here in Matthew 21, there are a lot of leafy trees without a lot of fruit. And the scripture is very clear that tares do grow up with the wheat. And one day, someday, someone is going to stand in the presence of a holy God and declare that they were one of his children and that they had done works in his name and he will look at them with no chance for recovery and say, I never knew you. And they will be cast into outer darkness. And I happen to believe that we are professionals at Flouncing up our leaves, and ratcheting up the noise of our sizzle, of adding to our glitter. And I've learned this. Some people have to make sure the leaves are in order because there's a hole in their heart. And there's a voice that screams on the inside, and they are pained to hear what that voice is revealing. And so they have to get extra busy. They have to make sure all their leaves are in order. They have to make sure they're shining as bright as they can. They have to add activity. They have to do more. They have to be seen. Because if they aren't busy and they aren't seen and their leaves aren't in order, that voice that screams inside of them, they begin to hear it. And they can't stand it. So they silence it. Not with the presence of the Holy Spirit. They silence it with more activity. And if I could say it in the harshest of terms, they're nothing more than fakes. All leaves, no fruit. All sizzle, no steak. All promise, no substance. Nothing there, and they stay as big. And I would think to myself, of all things, why wouldn't an individual who wasn't genuine just get out? Why wouldn't they just run for the hills? Because they're trying desperately to silence the scream on the inside with busyness and activity. And if they are accepted and if they are seen, somehow it mutes the shout. Ask Judas if you can hang out for years and in the end be a fake. Yes, it can happen. You say, but not me, right? Not me. I... Am really doing things, there will be those who say to the Lord, I did many wonderful works in your name. And he'll say, I didn't know you. You say, I, I don't like the thought of that. That's scary, right? Right? Even a child is known by his doings. That's what the scripture says. Even a child is known by his doings. You ever caught your kid doing something wrong? And they behave sheepishly. They're not good at masking their intent. Even a child is known by... You can tell if a kid's not behaving. You know how? Because a kid's not behaving. Even a child is known by his doings. So are adults. We think we're so savvy before God. Where you see sin, you have a sinner. Where you see carnal lusts being satiated, you have a carnally-minded individual. I'm just saying, listen, we have become so great at tending to our garden. We may not even know what the word horticulture means, but we're incredible horticulturists when it comes to making sure the leaves on our tree are in order. But there's nothing on the inside. What would Jesus do if he visited you? What would he clean out? I think it's incredible that in verse 19 of Mark 11 when even was come, he went out of the city. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from the roots. Now, we get insight into Peter, which is always one of my favorite things. Peter has a little thought, and Peter, the Bible says, calling to remembrance, saith unto him, Master, hey, Jesus, look at the fig tree. You cursed the fig tree, and it died. Do you believe that, Jesus? Is this just coincidence? Did this just happen? And Jesus answers very simply and says to him, Have faith in God. On the surface, we cannot deny that Jesus curses the fig tree, separates it from blessing, and then teaches them on prayer. He makes a point about faith. Having genuine faith, Jesus says, means being a person of prayer. Our faith is not in the prayer. Our faith is not in the habit of prayer. Our faith is not in how long we pray or how consistently we pray, but in the God of our prayer. Jesus looks at Peter and he says to him, hey, have faith in God. Why are you amazed that that tree withered when I cursed it? Do you not know who I am? Jesus, in short order, will be gathered with the disciples at the end of this Passion Week in the upper room, I think at John Mark's house. There in the upper room, Jesus will introduce to the disciples, yet again, the presence of the Holy Spirit, which is to come. And in that discourse, he will talk to them again about praying. If you ask anything in my name, my Father will do it. Jesus is communicating very important truths To the disciples in this moment. And he's teaching them to pray. Do you realize there's a moral component to prayer? A lot of people don't realize there's a moral component to prayer. What are you talking about? Prayer. Moral component. When Jesus was talking to the disciples. Standing on the Mount of Olives. On the side of this road. Walking into Jerusalem. He says this to them. When ye stand praying. Forgive. If ye have ought against any. That your Father also, which is in heaven, may forgive your trespasses, but if you do not forgive, neither will your Father, which is in heaven, forgive your trespasses. Jesus adds a conditional clause on to have faith in prayer, have faith in God, and pray. Now again, just remember, they're on their way into Jerusalem. Jesus is about to walk right back into the temple. He will be addressed by the chief priests. They're going to go into the hall of hewn stones. They're going to assess the whole world has gone after him. They're going to decide that they're going to kill Jesus, and it's in short order. And Jesus is standing alongside a path from Bethany into the city of Jerusalem next to a fig tree, and he says to the disciples, have faith in God. And then he adds on, and by the way, fellas... If you stand praying and you find that you have not forgiven your brother, you have ought against your brother, stop praying, forgive your brother, and don't expect that your prayer will be heard if you have not forgiven your brother. The psalmist will say something, and it's quite scathing. He says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Now let's just stay within the context of this story. If it's true that there are trees without fruit then it must also be true that there are prayers without answers. And we know this is fact because of the moral clause that Jesus attaches. That indicates that there are people who perhaps have prayed for decades and their prayers have not been heard. If you can't forgive your brother, how do you expect that I will forgive you? If you have regarded iniquity in your heart, I was told as a kid, my prayers will bounce off the ceiling. There's no truth to that. Prayers aren't visible. Mine would make it further because I can get them up there, get through there. They just wouldn't make it all the way. What Jesus is saying is, fellas, it's possible to have an impotent prayer life just like this tree. It's possible to look like it, but not have it. How many times have you begged God for discernment and direction, but because you have ought in your heart or sin, your prayer is unanswered. It's not even heard. And I know there are people who are working through life and they're trying, we just want what God wants. Do you? Even a child is known by his doings. Have you confessed these sins in order to get the direction of God? Then there's this, I wonder are we like the fig tree if Jesus Christ physically visited the temple that is our body, like Paul told the believers at Corinth. If he visited your life, if he visited your mind, if he visited your heart, would he need to clean it up? Would there be a few tables and chairs to tip over? Would he throw some things out? I have to ask this for myself. What would even be left? That's the question for me. What would even be left? One author wrote this. Soberingly, this passage does not just remind us that a Christian, by definition, must produce spiritual fruit. It's also about the threat of and temptation toward false pretenses of fruit. The fig tree, like the bustling temple courts during Passover, was putting on a good show, and that made it all the worse. It's one thing to lack fruit out of season, it's another thing to lack it while pretending you have it. So let us be warned. Our personal lives can look like, quote unquote, they are in leaf. Our leaves may look like those of a super mom, a winner, a perfect family, an A-team Christian with an overstuffed schedule of ministry activities, but the root may be withered. There may be no fruit of holiness and no intimacy with God. What's worse, our leaves may even fool us. How much empty activity? If Jesus were to walk into this Temple, and I know my theology. It was in quotes, temple. I wonder how many of us he would look at and say, I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. I don't know you. And I wonder how many others he would say, What are you doing? Forgive. What are you doing? Confess. What are you doing? You're motivated by people's attention. You need that pat on the back. If they don't see, if they don't know, what is the point? What would be left in your little temple if Jesus visited it? What I have found is this. Some of the most benign passages in Scripture actually contain some of the most scathing rebukes. And Jesus looked at his disciples and said, in effect, you remember the triumphal entry. You remember the palm branches. You remember the shouts of Hosanna. All sizzle, no steak, boys. You remember all the bustle around the temple, the bloodshed and the sacrifices going on, the priests and the oblations and the prayers and the incense and the blasts of the shofars. You remember in the treasury, all of those metallic drums where people were dropping their money in and the rich were having music played before them. Do you remember that entire scene? It's extortion. It's all fake. There's nothing there. From the roots up, it's gone. System thrown out. Stunning what Jesus is saying. And in short order, Jesus will sit at a table with the disciples and he will say, one of you will betray me. And in our minds, we think everybody sat there and was like, Judas. But the scripture actually says they all looked at Jesus and in a private way they said, Jesus, is it me? Indicating they had no clue who the fake was. Jesus, is it me? Am I the one that's not real? Am I the fake? Am I all leaves and no fruit? And then when Judas leaves, you think they'd all be like, not me. They all perceived that he had been sent on an errand for Jesus. It's not until the garden moment when they see him kiss Jesus and Jesus calls him friend yet again because he's so merciful that they go, Judas? was Judas? Do you know how many of us are going to get to heaven and think to ourselves, I never would have thought, now we won't have these carnal minds. Him? Her? I wonder how many of us are deceived by impeccable bushes. Impeccable trees. Amazing foliage. Nothing there. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes just for a moment